Before we begin, I, I don't normally like to call attention to strangers in our midst, but all the way from Kentucky, we do, do see the molders. We've reserved their pew. Uh, they are back, and uh, two out of three uh, of those present have put on their Christmas colors. And uh, so good to see you guys. Welcome back. Good, it's good to be together. We are looking at the Christmas celebrations, and so uh, this, we're going to start a series. And this morning, we're going to look at a, a, one of the compelling Christmas passages, the first verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I'll read our text before us this morning. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 1, verse, uh, uh, verse 1 through 17 of Ma- the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nachshon, and Nachshon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, and about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Methan, and Methan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. That's just one of those heartwarming Christmas passages <laughs> that thrills our soul. Shall I read that again? You know, the beginning of a book is, is always very important. It's the beginning of any kind of teaching or message. It gives you a sense of why you should read the book and if, and if it's a book that will interest you. I had a professor in seminary uh, when they would go to the shopping malls. Remember when people used to go to shopping malls? This was before Amazon. And, and they would, his wife would want to often have some things she was looking for. And, and he would find his way to the book store that was there. And, and he would start just pulling books off the shelf. And his hobby was he would read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. Just to kind of get a sense of how an author would grab you and let you go. And, and that was his hobby. And so um, it, it is a well-written book will grab you from the start. I, I, I pulled a bunch of books off my shelf and just thought I'd see what's the first par- verse first sentence or two might look like I like uh, Joel Rosenberg who's a Christian author and 
writes uh, prophetic fiction and, and really deals with thriller events of the future. Here's his first sentence in one of his books. Marcus Riker heard the whoosh of an incoming missile but never saw it coming. We want to find out what happened, right? Another uh, book about the Holocaust, and he says, uh, evil unchecked is the prelude to genocide. Hmm, that's a thoughtful one. I think I'll keep reading. Uh, here's, a, here's another sentence from uh, Steve Lawson. You've heard of him. Towering over the centuries of church history, there stands one figure of such monumental importance that he still commands attention and arouses intrigue and even 500 years after his appearance on the world stage. Who is he? What impact did he have? Uh, Erwin Lutzer, formerly pastor at uh, Moody Bible Institute. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? As a child, I wondered what those words could possibly mean. Obviously, the author of the hymn intended that we answer yes to the question, and yet, what could be clearer than the fact that I was not there when they crucified my Lord? And so he's going to take us down a direction <laughs> Recently reading a book by uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Jerry Boykin, who headed up Delta Force and other uh, type similar organizations, and a believer. He says, Washington, D.C. is a fickle beast, especially, especially in February. In that month, the world's most powerful city can wrap itself in sheets of ice and dare folks to step outside, or it can flirt a little incising with a false glimpse of spring. Okay, he's kind of got a lilt to his writings. Stephen Ambrose wrote, writes this, it was history's greatest catastrophe. More than 70 years after it ended, years marked by constant conflict in at least some parts of the world and by enormous improvements in weaponry and fire, firepower, World War II remains by far the most costly war of all time. Here's one from Grunts by John McManix. The most powerful, effective weapon in modern warfare is a well-trained, well-armed, and well-led infantry soldier. Are you noticing a trend? I'm noticing in my reading. <laughs> Here's another one that's off my shelf. Hebrew grammar, as it is generally understood and as it is envisaged in this book, is the grammar of the language of the traditional biblical text in the form in which it was established by the Jewish scholars of the Tiberian schools around the 7th century A.D., and that warms your heart. Here's a theology. Works on dogmatic or systematic theology generally begin with the doctrine of God. And it goes on. Well, you get the sense. Uh, the first sentences can either grab you or tell you, put that one down and look for something else. To our modern ears, the opening verses of Matthew are almost tend to discourage us, don't they? Some of us uh, try to read through the Bible in a year. And, and, and one of the places that kind of becomes a minefield to such plans is uh, the genealogies. You get into some of those things and it's like, oh. Genealogies are, one of the, to me, one of the great hindrances to Bible reading. One person said uh, about reading, remember, now some of you older folks remember, we used to have things called phone books. Remember those? And someone read through the phone book and they said, um, 
There, could you give us a review of the book? He said, well, it's a great cast, <laughs> but not such a great plot. <laughs> Geneal genealogy is just... Uh, put us away. J. Vernon McGee said this, when I was a teenager, I became interested in the Bible for the first time. I went to a summer conference where the Lord spoke to my heart. Our, our Bible teacher thrilled my heart as he taught the word of God. One morning he asked, how many of you young people have read the Bible through in a year? There were two to 300 young people there, but not a hand went up. He asked the same question four times. Finally, one young man in the back put up his hand rather hesitatingly and said, well, I read it but I only read the, parts that were read the parts that were interesting. I didn't read the genealogies. Everybody laughed, and the teacher laughed too and admitted that he didn't read them either. At that very moment, it occurred to me that since the Spirit of God has used so much printer's ink to give them to us, there must be some importance to them in, in, for us. So I'll have you know this genealogy now in Matthew because it is very important. We read this, and like I said, I, I lost you. Um, and I remember one time I was uh, speaking in a church, uh, a Chinese uh, church in San Francisco, and they said, Would you have, do you have a passage you'd like us to read? And I chose a section of Chronicles that had all kinds of names like this, and I felt terrible because the poor fellow was struggling. And every, you know, every verse I felt like, why did I do this to him? Well, we read through it, and again, you probably weren't struck by it, but to the Jewish reader, to the Jewish reader, especially of, of ancient times, the opening verses of Matthew, and really the, these are the opening verses of the New Testament, couldn't be more gripping. Look how it begins. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There it is. Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Has our hope, we, we sang, Emmanuel shall come. Has Emmanuel arrived? Or is he a hoax or a phony? So in other words, the, the Jewish reader, just from the first sentence says, this, they're, they're claiming Jesus is our Messiah. Our long hope for one, that he's actually already come. I heard one Jewish commentator was asked, you know, if, you know, Messiah arrived, what would you say to him? I would say, sir, is this your first or second visit? <laughs> That's the question. But, but in other words, here it is. Just so you don't, you know, sometimes you wonder, where's this author going? From the first words on the page, Matthew is making it clear. You may not like what I'm going to tell you, but Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the first question a, a good Jewish reader is going to say, well, if he's a if he is Messiah, he'd better show me his credentials. And the first credentials is, is he a descendant of the promised line? Is he Jewish? Did he come from Abraham? Is he from the tribe of Judah? And of all the descendants of Judah, is he from David the king? Because David was promised that his descendant would be Messiah. And so, prove it to me. Now, that's harder and harder today. Many Jews today would have a hard time proving what tribe they're from. Those of the priestly tribe tend to know, especially if they've got a name like Cohen, that means priest. And so I've mentioned to you before, I've, you know, I remember walking into a graveyard in Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. 
And one of my Jewish friends stayed outside the graveyard. I said, this is, this is more important to you than it is to me. Why, why are you not coming in? He said, well, I'm from the priestly tribe. I'm not allowed to walk through a cemetery. It would defile me. Well, he, knew, he, he knew his lineage. And back in the days of Jesus, you could go to the temple and you could check the genealogies. Remember when, when the tax came, where the census came, where uh, uh, the, the, the couple... Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph was, was of the lineage of David. He knew. And so here, Matthew writing in that time frame where you could check, says, he's the Messiah. And the first question you're asking is, does he have the right credentials? Did he come from the right line? Here it is. And he walks all the way from Abraham down to, G, to, to Jesus. He starts with Abraham because it was Abraham in Genesis 12 where God said, from you I will bless all the nations. And so he tracks all the way through back to Abraham and says, look at this. Jesus has the genealogical credentials that are essential. But as this uh, Jewish reader who's familiar with the text and, and knows how important genealogies are, he hits a couple speed bumps as he's uh, racing through this text. There are women named in this genealogy. You don't normally read that. If you think back in your mind about how you memorized several of those genealogies and chronicles, and other, you didn't, did you? But, but if you were to go back, you would read and read it. You're not going to see any women named because the lineage comes through the man. Well, okay, I guess actually if you turn to First Chronicles uh, chapter 1, you will actually see in verses 32 and 50 a woman named. But, but that's remarkable because it's so rare. But here in these 16 verses of Jesus' genealogy, there are five women named. Right there, because it's so unusual... It grabs your attention. So again, I think of the Jewish reader reading this. And, oh, he claims to be Messiah. And he, and he starts walking through from Abraham. But then when he starts bumping into these women's names, he's thinking, what's that doing there? Because you go back to Chronicles or whatever, and you'll see those genealogies, and you won't see them named. Why are they being named? What's so important about these women? And that's one of the things, when something stands out like you're saying, why is that there? Well, let me help by just, well, I'm not going to read through the whole genealogy again. Uh, once was enough, and probably some of my name pronunciations will be different the next time through. <laughs> um, but, but let's just look, at, let me, let's just single out some of these women that I've been mentioning to you and, and just consider what we know about them from the scriptures. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. That Tamar is a woman. Uh, the first woman in our list. And, and she, her story is found in Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is one of the darker chapters of Scripture. Chapter 37, Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. In chapter 39, there he is, a slave and eventually imprisoned. 
What happens in chapter 38, I take as a chapter that was laid out for us to show why God had to get the Jews out of the land of Canaan for 400 years. Because there was such moral and spiritual danger. And Judah, the line of promise, by the end of Genesis, it is announced that from Judah will come the Messiah. Judah has a major moral and spiritual problem. We see in Judah in chapter 38 of Genesis marrying a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were wicked. They were wickedly immoral and they had a wickedly immoral and uh, terrible religion. They, they worshipped Baal and, and many gods. They were, they were idolaters and polytheists and their, their, their morals and even their religion were wickedly immoral. And here we see Judah. His name means praise. Here we see Judah going and marrying a Canaanite woman. It's shocking, disappointing, and it's dangerous. Because the reality is, and this is why God will tell Israel later, you know, you're not to marry the people of the Canaanites. You're not to marry the people of, of these lands and they name about seven nations particularly, because if you marry them, they will draw your heart away. If you read on to Solomon, how he married hundreds of women, and they drew his heart away. Next thing you know, there he is building temples to their gods to keep them happy. And here's Judah. Praise is his name. Praise to the Lord. And he's marrying a Canaanite. Well, you read that and you're stuck. What are you doing? And we learned that he, in the process, uh, he had children. And then he, he took a wife, Tamar, uh, to, well, he had three sons. He, he took a wife for his son. But his first son was so wicked, God killed him. Now, the, the law, there was a principle in, in, in biblical law called leverate marriage. If a, if a man married and died without having children, his next in line brother would take his wife and the first child would be considered an heir of the one who died. Are you following that? That's important in the book of Ruth as well. And so I always think that would surely make you very urgently interested in who your brother married. <laughs> I am so glad you're thinking about this, Gil. Before you pop the question, can I take her out to coffee and get to know? <laughs> I just make sure I could live with this possibility and, oh, you're going to marry her. Well, I've subscribed to some vitamins. They'll be coming every month. Just stay healthy, brother. <laughs> Exercise, please. Um, and so, so the first brother was so wicked, God killed him. The second brother well, you know, the problem is, if, if, if and, and you see this come up in the book of Ruth. Well, if, if I, my first child is heir to him, then that's going to start dividing up my property and wealth. And, 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 where if, and so he refused to do the, the duties of a leverate husband. God killed him. And then comes the third son. And, and, and Judah's thinking, this isn't turning out too well for my sons. They marry this woman, they die. 
And so he, and she, and at this point, he was too young to marry. And so Judah promises, when when he gets old enough, you can have my third son to be your leverate husband. But he never kept his promise, and so Tamar tricked him into give, giving her a son. It, it, it was just, it was just so much that there was deception, there was immorality, there was sin. What a, what a sad, sad chapter. Tamar was right in the middle of it. The Canaanite woman, whose husbands kept dying, and who then deceived and committed moral immorality with her father-in-law and Tamar is in the line of Jesus our Savior Lord Messiah you know um, you know some people will be happy to tell you about their lineage and heritage some people you know they'll trace it all the way back to the Mayflower and you know daughters of the Confederacy and daughters of the American Revolution and they can they're happy to trace their genealogy some will trace their genealogy to Native Americans because it gives you good scholarships and good claims and some politicians will even make up stories about being related to this one or that. Tamar is one of those names you wouldn't want to banty around. <laughs> that would be one of those skeletons in the closet. But here's Tamar, Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament saying, hey folks, Messiah came from a Canaanite. Rahab is the next one named in chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. Rahab, remember that story? She's the one in, at Jericho. And she's described as a being, she, she, Jericho was a Canaanite city and it was one of the few cities that was so wicked, God said, don't just conquer it, destroy it. Take nothing out of that city. It is all condemned. Remember, that got Achan into trouble, remember? He, he saw some treasures in there, tried to hide them in his tent, and, and it didn't work out too well for Achan. But that, that tells you how wicked Jericho was. And here is a woman who was an immoral woman in Jericho, Rahab. Remember, the, she, she, she ran an inn there that was on the wall of the city. And so when the spies were sent by Joshua to, 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 to kind of scour and, and, and preview the promised land and survey it, you know, before we go to battle, let's, let's, let's do our scouting. Uh, they went and, and, and went to Rahab's inn. Remember, she hid them. And when the king sent soldiers to because they heard that there were some foreigners in town, uh, she, she said, oh, they must have left already. She helped the spies of Israel who were coming to conquer the land because she had come to believe in the God of Israel. I'll read Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. In Joshua 2, verses 9 and 12, we read, and, and, and she, said, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has, and, and if you were to look along, along with me, you would notice that the word Lord is all in capitals. 
So here is a Canaanite in in Jericho using God's personal name, Yahweh or Jehovah. I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. She's given good intelligence here, by the way. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one of because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's a pretty strong profession of faith. And then she goes on in verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. So, yes, she is an immoral Canaanite woman in the city of the uh, wicked city of Jericho. But she recognizes that Yahweh is the one true God. And she wants to flee to him. And she does. And remember, they said, okay, we'll make you a deal. We will protect you and your family. But they must be, and in, in, in lay out the details. But, but we will protect you. And, and, and then what we're told is um, they did protect her. In Hebrews 11.31, by the way, just in case I'm misreading the text, in Joshua, here's what Hebrews 11.31 says. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spots with peace. The New Testament tells us Rahab was a woman of faith. She came to faith in the one true God. But we're told Salmon begot Boaz. We're not sure uh, of the details of that. Uh, there's a tradition that says he was one of the spies. And, and, and so that may have followed through. We're not, told that, that, that we're not told about this marriage in the Old Testament. That's one of those things where, Lord, could you have added a couple more verses? <laughs> this, this would, with just a couple would have been really nice. And I guess he did here. So we, we're told what became of Rahab, the immoral Canaanite. And she's in the line of the Messiah. Now, the next one is Ruth, chapter 1, verse 5 also. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. We know that name Boaz if we know the story of Ruth. Boaz begot, begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. And if you remember, Jesse is the father of King David. Ruth is one of those shining lights in the scriptures. In fact, she is a shining light in one of the darkest period of Israel's history, the period of Judges. Remember that refrain that we read as you're reading through in the book of Judges? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? In other words, they were not going to bow to God's standards and God's revelation. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And people today, that's their attitude, right? The God I worship, you mean the God you made up in your own mind? Okay. The God I worship, or, well, it, it seems right to me. Who are you to hate, you know, hate me? 
by saying this is wrong or this is wrong. Judges was that period. Every man did what was right in his own eyes instead of saying, Lord, I bow before you. You know, you are right and know what's right. Show me the way. But, but Judges was a period of darkness. You, it, there are passages and, and times in there that are deeply troubling. And here is Ruth, a shining light. But where did that light come from? She's a Moabite. Now that doesn't, may not mean a lot to us. You probably haven't met any Moabites recently. And I start wondering right off, just occurred to me, is there a, I'll bet you there's a Moab somewhere in te- East Texas. Uh, she's a Moabite. Uh, that, 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 was a, that was a whole nation that came out of immorality. Remember Lot's daughters. The Moabites came from them. She was, um, the Moabites were, again, pagan idolaters. And again, wickedly immoral. And Ruth was a Moabite. Remember the story? There was a famine in the land. So um, this family moved from Bethlehem over to Moab. The sons married. One married Orpah, one married Ruth. The father and the sons died, and so Naomi said, I'm heading back to, you know, I, I heard the, the, the crops have returned to Bethlehem. We're going, I'm going back. And her, and her daughters-in-law said, we'll come with you. And she said, no, no, you go back to your people. And one of the daughters-in-law does, Orpah. And, and Ruth says, I'm not leaving. And she says, look at Orpah. She has gone back to her people. She has gone back to her gods. You do the same. And Ruth says, Loosely translating, not on your life. Um, Remember, she makes that wonderful statement. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. And what she is saying is not unlike what Rahab said. I am embracing your God. I'm casting my lot with your God. Your God will be my God. I'm turning my... And notice what she was doing. She's turning her back on her land. She's turning her back on her family and people. And she's turning her back on the gods of Moab. And she is saying, I want to be a part of Israel. I want to be a a part of Israel's God. And she married godly Boaz, who came from Rahab. But he was a godly man, and we read about him, remember, in the book of Ruth. It's just wonderful. He's, he's a wealthy landowner, has lots of property, and he has people harvesting in his fields. And, and when he comes on the fields, he wasn't one of these oppressive workers. He would always greet them, the Lord bless, you know, the Lord bless you. And they'd reply, the Lord bless you. He was a godly man. When he saw Ruth in his field, some people make it say, well, Ruth must have been really pretty because he sure noticed her. Well, she was beautiful in character. Remember, he said, who's that woman? He's, he, you, know, you know how small town is. You, know, you recognize the stranger. Who's that woman? Well, that's, that's the Ruth, the Moabitess, who came with Naomi, and he'd heard. She left her family. She left her land. She, she left her gods. And she is here taking, she's taking care of Naomi. She could easily have said, forget it, Naomi. I'm going to go find another husband. That's what Naomi told her to do. 
But she's taking, she's, and she was out in the field taking God's pattern for welfare where the things that fell while they were harvesting, they could gather. And so he had heard all about this Moabitess. And so he tells his people, you leave her alone. And in fact, you drop extra for her. Why? Because he, he was so pleased with her godly character. <laughs> if you'll take care of Naomi, I'm going to take care of you and Naomi. Boaz was a godly man. Again, he was a shining light in a dark time in Israel. And so we don't mind seeing Ruth there, even though she is a Moabite. But at least she's a hero. Matter of fact, how can we complain? She's got a book named after her in the Bible. Got to be okay. Then in verse 6, Bathsheba. And Jesse, remember that was Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her, literally, my, my translation says, her who had been the wife of Uriah. My, the Hebrew text basically, literally says, by her of Uriah. Some of your translations will have the word, by, will name her, by, by Bathsheba. Um, that, that name is not in any Greek manuscript. It's, she's not named. You know, that's your first clue that maybe there's something embarrassing about this person. We're not even going to name her. But, but there's also something significant. Notice what's saying. David begot Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's not how that's supposed to work. You remember the story, another sordid story? He saw her. It, 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 the, the text says that it was a time when kings went out to war. There was a season for war. You waited till the wet season was over so you could march, okay, and there'd be food to pick in the lands. You go out to war. But David stayed home. He was not, he was absent without leave. And while he was enjoying himself in the, in the comforts of home and his soldiers were out fighting and the horrors of war that's when he saw Bathsheba had her brought to him and then he had to cover up what he had done and the only way he could figure out to do that was to have Uriah killed it was adultery and it was murder it was wrong and that first child died but then they married and they had Solomon so Solomon this is not to pick on Bathsheba, but again, that's, that's one of those um, situations that uh, I really wrestled with. Do I even deal with this text? <laughs> Maybe there's a reason we don't cover the first 16 verses of Genesis at Christmas time, or Matthew. But there was Bathsheba, born and, and giving Solomon, who was the son of King David, well, the last woman now mentioned is, so there's the reading along this Jewish reader and thinking, oh, there's another woman. Oh, there's another embarrassment. Then we come in verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It's very specific language there. Joseph is in the line of the genealogy, but it's not saying that he's the father of Jesus he didn't beget Jesus, but he's married to Mary, of whom was begotten by the Holy Spirit, Jesus. So Matthew writes him very clear, saying this is the miracle birth 
But still, as child of Joseph, Jesus is in the lineage to the throne. So Mary's mentioned in a very different way. To emphasize, this woman has to be named because she is the mother of Messiah and there is no earthly father. So what, what, what are, why are these women in this genealogy? What are we supposed to glean from this? At least three of them are non-Israelites. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth. Rahab and Tamar, Canaanites. Ruth, Moabite. They're not only, not, they're not only Gentile, they're not, not only not Jewish, they're all from condemned peoples, wicked peoples. What's, what are we supposed to gain from that? They came from families of, of idolatry and wicked immorality. Why are they in there? The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When we get to chapter 2 of Matthew, we see front and center Gentiles. You know, the, the kings from afar. From the east, they're not Jewish. They're Gentiles. They're magi or wise men. When the book of Matthew closes, what are some of the closing words we see? What's called Great Commission. You're, you're, you're going to go to all the world with the gospel. And so right early on, Matthew in his genealogy shows God's grace. Look at this. Canaanites, Moabite. Beneficiaries of God's grace, recipients of God's grace. Yes, the blessing of Abraham was to all nations, and we can see that in the genealogy and in the fact of these women. Further, when we look at these women, in three of the cases, immorality was manifest. Rahab and Tamar and, and Bathsheba. So some, they're, not, they're on accursed peoples. Some, accursed behavior. And when I was thinking about that, I just wrote down those wonderful words from Scripture, but God. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Tamar, Rahab. Bathsheba, but God, who is rich in mercy, they are spectacles of God's grace. The genealogy shows God's grace, mercy, and God's forgiveness. Never, never underestimate the richness of God's grace and mercy towards sinners. Micah 7, 8 came to mind. Who is a God like you, pardoning the iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. You don't see that in the pagan gods. You see them as gods of wrath or gods of self-indulgence. He says, there is no God like this who forgives. 
who's a God of mercy and grace. And so these women in their national origin, these women in their moral backgrounds, we see them as, as pictures of God's grace. And again, that reminded me of Paul as, as he was writing to Timothy. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. This gospel is reminding us in this genealogy that God is a grace a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Psalm 103, of course, is such a statement of that in verses 10 to 13. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. This genealogy, by, in, by making a, a point of, of, of stepping outside the norms, you don't tell, put women in genealogies. And you certainly, if you were going to include women, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca, Deborah. <laughs> but not these women. Well, Ruth, she's a happy, but she's still a Moabite. But oh, this is to remind us, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background, I have talked with people over the years that will say, you don't under, if, if you knew me, if you knew what I had done, you would understand there's no hope for me. God would never forgive. And I can only say, you're wrong. Who is a pardoning God like you? And these women, and, and may I say, I think Matthew takes a risk that he's going to lose some of his Jewish readers. Rahab, Tamar, oh, for goodness sake, Bathsheba, what are they doing in there? Oh, I know about them, but we don't talk about them in our family. And what God is saying, when he is saying is Jesus is the Messiah, and you know why he came? What does he just say? I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for the needy. I came for you. He came for me. And so sometimes we, in these joyful times, we might kind of get a little down reflecting on, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I don't. He does. And he is a God of mercy and grace. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And that's the word for repenting faith, those who come to him for mercy. If you come to Jesus Christ confessing your guilt and asking for forgiveness, you will find in him the fullness of grace and forgiveness. 
And he will say to you who were once a rebel and even an enemy, Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Come, sit at the table. And so in the Christmas season, what better way to begin the story as Matthew did, but to remember it's all about grace. Because we might say, well, how can God forgive people like that? People like me. Read the rest of the book. It cost him dearly. And that is why the Holy One of Israel, the sinless one, had to die the death of a cross and bear the infinite wrath of God that he might pay for even my sin so that I could trust in him and be forgiven, made alive, brought near, and so much more. So as you read through the New Testament, don't skip the genealogies. And as you see those women who really don't belong there, they do. And they tell us, you know what? We don't belong either. And yet, but God, he draws us near. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for forgiveness in him. I thank you for his grace to these women and his grace toward us. And Father, how I pray if any here who have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, may you open their eyes to see and their hearts to welcome Christ as Savior. Now as we look to this Lord's table, Father, fill our hearts with joyful reminding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.